0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Realty Speak, the podcast. You might have been wondering where I've been for the last six weeks. Well, good things come to people who wait, and you're really, really going to enjoy this episode. Because, as you know, Realty Speak, the podcast, is where experts answer questions and share real world examples that you, the listener, can incorporate as part of your real estate investment strategy to build up revenue. Realize higher returns, and retain more profit when you sell. Without further ado, here's yours truly, Bill Widener, and this episode's guest. Welcome, John Law. Thank you for joining us today on Realty Speak. Thank you, Bill. Glad to be here. You know, John, you have a lot to share with us today about the strategies around raising capital for real estate projects, and I'm really, really excited about this episode, and I'm sure our listeners are too. Before we get started, though, I'd like to share a little bit about you with our listeners. You received your undergraduate degree from Brigham Young University and your law degree with honors from the University of Utah. You also served as a senior member of the Utah Law Review. Currently, you are the managing partner of Capital Fund Law, which is a New York-based firm that focuses on advising hedge funds, private equity funds, and other alternative funds using varied strategies, including equity fixed income, debt, sector funds, and of course, as we will discuss today, real estate equity capital. Additionally, you speak at institutional investment conferences, both nationally and internationally, and you've been quoted in many prominent publications on topics relevant to securities law and raising capital. But before we get into our episode, I'm curious as to what led you to this specific niche in your law practice.
1: Thank you. Uh, Actually, I was uh, heading to a career in IP law. I had spent my first and second summers during law school focused on on IP in Silicon Valley uh, with a large international law firm. And I uh, had a lunch with uh, one of the partners that was heading to the Abu Dhabi office of our firm and explained uh, how exciting it is to work in the investment funds space. And I have never looked back, and that was over 10 years ago. And your own firm? So since law school, I've actually been very excited about investment funds. I have focused... Uh, on investment funds my entire career, uh, over 10 years in this space, in both the the hedge fund side and the private equity side, which includes real estate. And in 2010, uh, I founded my own firm, Capital Fund Law, and have increased our practice to represent clients throughout the world.
0: Thank you for sharing that, and let's get started. There are many ways that real estate investors and developers, also known as sponsors, can raise equity capital today. My first question is going to be what is the classification of the different strategies to actually do this?
1: Sure, and and I'll be happy to answer that. Generally in in these discussions, uh, I try to tread lightly on the underlying regulations and really talk about the practical Issues, the the capital raising strategies, and common uh, mistakes that emerging real estate fund managers make. So, to answer your question, when you look at at real estate funds, we find that clients tend to follow a fairly predictable continuum, uh, starting out with smaller sponsors doing single asset acquisition vehicles, and that is where they are coming together, raising capital, usually a smaller amount, to invest in in one or more single project. From there, they advance to a real estate fund, and a real estate fund is a private equity fund that allows an investor to come in into a pooled investment vehicle where you're investing in a number of funds. From there, they they grow larger to create a family of funds using uh, variations of equity and debt. And then ultimately, the some of the very large funds
0: would turn towards REITs. John, let me make sure I understand. There's the single asset acquisition vehicle, which would have a sponsor, developer, and real estate investor raising capital for one single asset. Could be a multifamily building, could be a development site for apartments or condominiums or retail, industrial or office. But if they were going to do multiple projects, then they would do a fund which is pooled,
1: that's right. When there are multiple projects, there there are a couple options. So a, a single asset acquisition vehicle is really an operating company. And that's and that's the difference is they're investing in their own projects. When you get to a fund, the the, the managers or the sponsors are identifying multiple opportunities. Once a sponsor moves from their own individual real estate investment to identifying multiple opportunities, they would switch over to a
0: real estate fund. Tell me a little bit about how that would break down for the sponsor engaging themselves with other people at the general partner level and then raising the capital from people that are limited partners. Is it different in the fund than it is in the single asset acquisition vehicle? In a fund,
1: you've got a, uh, a separate group, the, the sponsors, that are essentially identifying investment opportunities. And compensation and the compensation structure is really not based on the development, but on finding these investment opportunities. And a fund manager can be a, a solo manager, but more often uh, a team of fund managers that have... Uh, expertise in identifying investment uh, strategies. Now the fund may engage a developer, but this is where a fund is different than an operating company. In an operating company, generally a single asset acquisition vehicle, the manager is is usually doing everything. Whereas in a fund, the manager wears multiple hats and they're sometimes compensated in Uh, wearing those multiple hats, especially when they're
0: very small. So in the single asset acquisition vehicle, let's say you have a developer, they're going to develop a piece of vacant land into a multifamily building, and they're going out to raise capital, and they're not raising it from people that they know, this would be something that they would use for that?
1: Even if they are raising from people they know, we find in this space that especially emerging fund managers, mistakenly believe that there is some form of friends and family exemption that would allow them to raise uh, capital from people they know closely or that are small investments. In reality, even these smaller investments need to be structured appropriately to satisfy the
0: securities laws. So what happens if I identify... A building in some state—it's—it's it's a distressed property, and you know I can buy it for three million dollars, and I don't have three million dollars, but I know that I have the expertise to turn this asset around and actually make money with it. Can I reach out to people that I know that have capital that they'd want to invest in my project and say to them, hey, you know I'm going to buy this asset. It's three million dollars. Uh, This is how much I'd like to raise. I'm going to borrow, uh, you know, 50, 60% from a lender. And this is how we're all going to participate in this. And, you know, I plan it to be a three to five year plan. We're all going to share cash flow over the period of time. We're also going to benefit with the increase in value in the, and the profit that we receive when we disposition the property. Can I just go ahead and, you know, call people up and tell them I want to do this or or should I be actually creating one of these single asset acquisition vehicles?
1: One thing to to realize is that once a individual or entity raises capital in any way, they're potentially coming A securities issuer, an investment advisor, sometimes a broker, a placement agent. There are a lot of hats that are worn, and it's unfortunate to hear of groups that end up becoming a fund manager without realizing they're a fund manager, become a securities issuer without realizing that. Now, at the same time, uh, we joke about the good deal exemption. We see a, a lot of people that will tell us that this is the way they've done things and that Nothing has gone wrong, and maybe that's industry practice well that 's uh, unfortunate because when when nothing bad happens for a time, people can become complacent. Going back to your question, there are a couple of ways that we would approach the capital race, and it really depends on how many investors you have if you have a very small number of pre-identified investors. I would say generally as a rule of thumb, five or fewer, three or fewer. These are individuals with whom you plan to negotiate the transaction. And they are deemed to be in a position to be able to negotiate and set the terms of the deal. Certainly with one, almost always with two or three. After five, the reality is the the ability to negotiate, the ability to do their own due diligence is lessened. So if they, if you have a small group of people, we generally would not prepare a full private placement memorandum. This makes the offering less expensive, more straightforward, quicker, and essentially, yes, you prepare a single asset acquisition vehicle, usually a LLC or a limited partnership, and then a management company if you so desire i generally recommend that you do a management company because it allows a track record to start in case you you want to do an additional fund and then we would prepare the governing documents of that vehicle as well as a subscription agreement in addition you'd file what's known as a form d uh, at the federal level and at the state level and this is fairly straightforward and simple there would be a negotiation on the terms of the of the term sheet and all the partners would sign that is the approach when there are just a few pre-identified partners conversely if a fund sponsor is looking to raise capital from an unidentified group or five or more participants this isn't statutory but this is good practice uh, and and a fairly strong consensus among securities practitioners, that when you raise capital from, from more than this small group of people, then you'd need to prepare a full private placement memorandum to accompany the other documents. And this is going to be a fairly extensive disclosure document that lays out the investment strategy, structure, uh, investment terms, risks, And a number of important tax provisions and investment provisions that investors need to know. And this is more involved and more formal. And this certainly doesn't need to be done for every vehicle. But if you're going to raise capital from a larger number or from people that uh, have not been pre-identified, that's the approach.
0: John, is one of the distinctions the amount of participation that, you know, my friends uh, have in the project? You know, so for instance, hey, I found this $3 million asset that we can buy and I need to raise a million and a half dollars. We're going to borrow the other million and a half from a lender and I'll take care of everything. And so they're very, very passive and maybe even in my agreement with them, they're limited partners as opposed to they're involved in the negotiations. They're involved in the project itself. Each one of them has a role that they're going to fulfill in order for us to reposition this asset.
1: You're, You're looking at the difference between raising capital and joining together to form a partnership. Now, the reason this is especially important for real estate is because that concept is often abused where there is a discussion. This is a, a partnership and formalities aren't followed. Form D's aren't filed. And in reality, we've got sponsors out soliciting. So to look at this in the, in the, specific uh, regulation, we're looking at the Securities Act. The Securities Act governs investments into a, a security. And in this case, there is an exemption available when partners are coming together. It's, it's the backup exemption known as Section 4A2. And it comes into play when the parties are deemed to be in a position where they know or should know about the material risks of the offering and the material aspects of the transaction. So what I would look to generally is voting and decision-making. When there is an individual that's involved on paper, has equity holding, and is not involved in the decisions, is not weighing in on the strategy, is not being called on to, to share his or her viewpoint we would see that more as a true 4A2 partnership situation, where there would be no need to file a, a Form D. Now, there sh- definitely should be other documents in place, sh- such as the, the operating agreement, the, the subscription documents, etc. But the important distinction now is these parties do not need to be accredited. And that's generally where this is abused, where fund sponsors want to bring in one or more individuals that does not meet the Regulation D standards, and so they call them a partner when they really are not.
0: So that's Regulation D as in DOG?
1: Yes, that's right. That's the safe harbor. Regulation D is the safe harbor for a uh, securities offering. And in almost every case, it's a regulation D rule 506. That can be 506 B or C. There are other regulations that apply, but they're very dangerous and we generally don't get into them because they involve non-accredited investors.
0: So I'll probably circle back to that uh, Rule five hundred six B and C. Did you say yes? One one is for advertising. One is for oh, all right. So B is in boy, C is in cat, uh, and then re- regulation D is in dog. I'm going to circle back to you in a little while to get a little bit more clarification on that. But you mentioned accredited investors. Would you please explain to the listeners what an accredited investor is? Sure,
1: and it is important to know what. Wealth standard applies, and it can differ uh, depending on the strategy that you're employing. But generally, for a fund sponsor that is investing purely in real estate, not in joint ventures of real estate, not in conglomerate or syndication, but in direct real estate, it is the accredited investor standard. And technically, under 506C, up to 35 investors can be non-accredited. However, for many reasons, we strongly urge that there are not even one. Uh, so what is an accredited investor? It is an investor that either one has individually a $200,000 net income for two years, expecting the same in the third, or $300,000 combined with spouse, that's the income test, or... They can also get there through a joint net worth, excluding the primary residence, of $1 million. And that net worth can be calculated based on their investment assets, which can include the value of ownership in, in businesses.
0: So in an offering that requires accredited investors, then the sponsor, fund manager, they need to make sure that these people are accredited. How do they do that?
1: And that's a question that I get frequently. This comes to the distinction between a 506B offering, which is a traditional offering, not using advertising and general solicitation, and a a 506C. And a 506C is a specific exemption provided for in the JOBS Act allowing a fund issuer, including a real estate fund, to advertise. Where you're not advertising, the burden is on the investors to self certify that they meet the standard and the fund manager so long as they do not know or have reason to suspect that the investor is being untruthful can rely on that
0: and so then they're completely insulated from anything that could happen as a result of them having a not accredited investor as part of their fund again the standard
1: is that they don't have reason to believe that the person is being untruthful. This is a protection. And insofar as someone falsifies certification, then absolutely, unless there was a reason to know or to believe that this person was lying, there's no further inquiry. In fact, we suggest that you don't do deep inquiries into the investors because that can have a precedent effect and that can enmesh you potentially into crossing over into the role of an investment advisor which you should not do.
0: So I guess on Rule 506C, which is the one that deals with advertising, the investor is not self-certifying that they're accredited? That's right. In a 506C offering,
1: every investor must be accredited, and there's an additional step requiring that all investors have that accredited standard certified, and there are uh, different ways to, to do that. The only way that we... Would, would feel comfortable and recommend that you do is through third-party certification from a CPA attorney or broker-dealer, generally their own. But you can also arrange to have one of many third-party providers do that certification. But the, the manager really shouldn't be getting involved in their investor's personal wealth.
0: And how about a... If- we go back to that original example that I gave. I'm having my friends and we're all partners and we're all going to participate in the repositioning of the property equally. We're all going to be decision makers. Do they have to be accredited investors?
1: No, that's a good question. So they're coming under, 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 a, under the standard or fallback exemption for A2, which is not under Regulation D. The manager of a fund is not required to be accredited. And so, when you get together in a cooperative partnership structure, then there's no requirement that anyone meet that standard.
0: John, I promised I would circle back to Rule 506C and also Regulation D. I had some other questions about that, and I'd like to ask them now. Great. In Regulation D, you would mention that That form has to be filed both federally and at a state level. So let's say I have an asset in North Dakota, but I'm getting investors in New York, New Jersey, California, Texas, Uh, where do I have to file that Regulation D form? Do I have to file it where the asset is, or do I have to file it in the place where all the investors are coming from?
1: So first, there will always need to be a federal Form D filed. And then after that, you need to have a filing in the location where the investors are located. There's no requirement necessarily that you have a filing in your home state, but we'd almost always prepare that just in case. Now, another issue is timing. We don't want to have sponsors pre-filing in all 50 states. That would be very expensive because of the time and also because of the fees that each state charges. New York is a state where that filing needs to be made before really talking to investors and before any form of solicitation. In the other states, generally you have 15 days from the receipt of investment or the signing of the subscription documents to make the filing. And then there's the state of Florida, which as of the time of this recording, it does not require a Form D filing in, in this situation.
0: So that timing is very important. And if you are operating in New York, then you probably should file in New York because if you acquire investors in New York, You want to have that filed in advance. Exactly. And then, as you raise capital across the country, you would then file that form in the states in which the investors are located. Exactly. Now, on the 506C, which is the one that has to do with advertising, correct? Yes. You know what comes under the category of advertising? I mean, you see all these things on the internet. You have these crowdfunding sites where people can invest—you know, fifty dollars or a hundred dollars or two thousand dollars or five hundred thousand dollars. I mean, is that considered advertising? Do those sites have to follow all these rules? Great question. So the
1: Jobs Act created a number of opportunities for non-traditional capital raising. Now, our experience has been that true crowdfunding, where you're going after non-accredited investors is very difficult in a real estate situation, very dangerous, and we just avoid it generally, except for perhaps companies that are are well-established and can afford the potential compliance problems and burdens that come with that. When I say advertising it is under the jobs act in september of 2013 advertising and general solicitation became allowed now when this first came out i spoke on a number of panels i spoke to the media about this and we had talked about how this was a very significant departure there were a lot of expectations we have found that among emerging fund managers advertising tends to be more successful as a secondary means as a brand awareness and not as a primary strategy it's very difficult to reach the type of investors that you want through either solicitation or advertising but as as a fund grows it's a very effective way to build that brand awareness but there's also a reputational issue and this is not to to speak negatively about any group but Among mainstream capital raisers, intermediaries, investors, institutions, there is a bit of a negative perception of emerging funds, especially, that would be relying on true advertising. The other issue is it becomes very easy fishing for the SEC and for the states because the standard for what is misleading in an advertising situation is actually quite low, uh, but for a for a, a securities offering, it's very easy to trip the securities laws by either omitting a full statement or making a something that could be deemed misleading, and it's all out there for anyone to uh, to sift through.
0: So, using that example that I described before, there's this three million dollar asset, and I have two friends that going to come in with me, and they're going to put in $500,000 each, and I'm going to put in $500,000. And uh, we want to raise another $500,000 and borrow a million and a half from a lender, 50% loan to value ratio. And so we come to someone like yourself, and we say we want to do a single asset acquisition vehicle. And I guess that means we're going to do a private placement and we're going to need a private placement memorandum, and we're going to have to use 506B or 506C, and we're going to have to file form D. Am I on the right track here?
1: Yeah. And and it's important to talk to a real estate fund attorney about that because depending on the type of launch, it might be a fairly straightforward, simple offering. It might be a more advanced offering and we would want to make sure that the total capital raise is commensurate with the structure that we're using
0: so suppose I want to use rule 506c and I want to advertise and I want to create a website for this specific asset and I want to put it out there and um, and and I also have a network of people that are going to start sharing this with you know people that they know uh, am I exposing myself to anything there
1: While it is legal, there are two issues. One is the reputational concern. The other is the legal risks. Every time there is any communication in an advertisement form, it really should be reviewed by legal counsel. You're going to need to have a really tight structure where there are only a certain number of high-level individuals providing information. Now, rules on what is considered advertising, is based on SEC standards that are are fairly open to interpretation and there have not been really strong statements. However, in our experience, seeing where states and the SEC has pushed back, we did notice a significant jump in the scrutiny of these funds after advertising became allowed.
0: So you talked about the SEC, what are the organizations that monitor all this? So
1: liability can come from a number of sources. The most common and the more, most likely is when an investment goes wrong. And this is one of the reasons why real estate as an asset class has really had a lot of problems with the sophistication of some of the securities offering documents. In, in so many cases, if a real estate deal goes bad, it doesn't go horribly. It does not look like a startup or a derivatives strategy of a hedge fund, but there is a, an asset and value can go up or down. And so there really has been, in some unfortunate cases, people that will not recognize how important it is to be very careful about these regulations. Going back to answer your questions, so first of all, you've got liability coming from investors who would sue the sponsors. Obviously, if things go fine, that doesn't come up. The other way that a sponsor can face liability is when something goes wrong. In addition to lawsuit, there can also be lawsuit by the state, by the SEC, and and potentially the, the Internal Revenue Service. And states can can bring these up on their own. The SEC can bring them on their own attorneys general. But most commonly, it's brought up when a deal goes south and a plaintiff attorney will come to seek enforcement.
0: And what about FINRA?
1: So fortunately for security sponsors, FINRA does not come into play unless there is an action by A broker dealer. And this is a good time to talk about the exemption that even allows a fund sponsor to raise capital to to sell securities. The reason that they're allowed to do this is because they are a representative of the company. So it's known as the issuer's exemption. When a representative of the sponsor raises capital, it does so under the issuer exemption. Now, if the fund manager engages a placement agent that's a broker-dealer, that's when FINRA gets involved. It's in that payment for an introduction of capital by a third party.
0: Aren't the fees that the sponsor is paying to the placement agent slash broker-dealer, aren't they described on the Form D?
1: They are. The fees are, are described... Anytime you pay someone, and I misspoke when I said to a third party, anytime you pay any transaction-based compensation, whether that be a percentage, whether that be a contingency fee to anyone inside or outside of the company, that needs to be done through a FINRA registered broker dealer. If you do it internally, you need to have your own broker dealer. If it's externally, it needs to be through a proper broker dealer. And yes, that's described both in the offering documents and as one of the disclosure items in the federal form defiling.
0: So if if I'm a sponsor developer and I'm going to do a single asset acquisition vehicle and a private placement and I want to hire an employee to help me raise capital, can I do that? So if
1: that employee is acting as your agent... And so long as they, they perform other duties and there, and there are some other issues that we need to go through, then then yes, that's possible to do. However, this is where we get into trouble. You've got to not pay any form of bonus, any extra pay, any increase in equity, anything of value that would be different for one employee that raises nothing and one employee that raises, say, a 20 million. And that is an issue that you won't run into until there is a lawsuit or a regulatory action.
0: So while we're on that subject, what happens when, you know, I hear finders and finder fees and people that have close networks of people that want to invest in real estate or even other asset classes, and they raise money for the person who's managing the asset, so the sponsor, the fund manager, and then those people receive a fee for making the introduction. Is that okay?
1: It's not, and it's common practice. It's becoming decreasingly so as the information regarding the liability of doing that is becoming more open. So there are very few instances where a finder fee can be paid to a non-broker dealer that's found in the Paul Anka letter. Your listeners want to look that up and they will unfortunately find that it's very narrow. Now this is perhaps the most frequently asked question of first-time fund managers or capital raisers because it's not intuitive. It seems that for a smaller startup there really shouldn't be a a difficult process. You should be able to pay someone and and there are a number of practitioners that agree. Nonetheless, that is the position, and I have heard all sorts of different potential creative strategies to be able to backdoor this payment. But what I always repeat is, well, if you get into a situation as creative as you are, the plaintiff's attorney or the SEC is going to be equally as as creative in their ability to, to see what you've done. And I think it is important to know how to structure an offering with co-managers because raising capital really is an important aspect. You don't want to give equity to someone who's not going to to bring capital. You shouldn't change that later on, but take some time to look at the potential capital raise before you set up equity. And you can, one, pay a party, to make introductions and, and other, items relating to the finance of the company so long as it's properly set up, so long as there are legitimate other reasons, and so long as there's a flat fee. Also, you look at the relative value that each partner is going to have and then grant that before they start actually bringing in their hard commitments. That said, the rule still applies. You cannot get anything of value for introducing capital.
0: So then a sponsor fund manager would be able to pay a third party if they had an agreed to in advance. And is that the distinction? In advance, flat fee. That's also paid in advance.
1: Yes. If you're, if you're paying a flat rate, it is a true retainer and it's being paid for services. And generally, as a rule of thumb, it's far less then they would ex- expect to pay a broker on a percentage basis. And that's really the way you stay on the safe side. You, you, you look at the time expended rather than the, the value. If we're talking about millions paid in, to a non-registered broker-dealer, it doesn't matter how you structure it, it's it's going to be suspect.
0: Let me just review and make sure that I have it straight. If I'm a sponsor and I do a private placement of a single asset acquisition vehicle and I'm not advertising and I'm raising the capital myself and I'm offering it to all accredited investors, even though five oh six B allows me to have non accredited investors because they're self certifying Um, I still probably shouldn't do that just to be on the safe side. And I'm not paying anybody a success fee to raise the capital for me. And I'm going out and I'm raising the capital myself. Maybe I have an employee, but the employee's not getting anything extra from that. And they're helping me. They have other duties at the company. I can do that. That's right. Then if I do want someone outside a third party to help me, I shouldn't be using a quote-unquote consultant or a quote-unquote finder because I'm subjecting myself to possible liability down the road. There are ways you and I just discussed that you can do that with flat fees in advance. But still, I'm probably better off at that point using a placement agent with a broker-dealer. Exactly. And the the broker-dealer, that's the, that's the company... That's registered as a broker-dealer with which agency? FINRA. FINRA. And the placement agency, is that an employee of the broker-dealer?
1: Yeah, a placement agent just describes that that relationship, which is a broker-dealer, and then you have a registered rep of the broker-dealer. And so the, the registered rep is performing the services, the broker-dealer is being paid. And just to cre- correct one thing, you, you mentioned that this is in this setting of... A private placement, single asset acquisition vehicle. These same rules apply whether you're raising capital for a a, a full fund, pooled investment vehicle, or single asset. These are just the, the the rules. The the other thing, just to emphasize, is having all accredited investors is very important because if you have even one non-accredited investor. It opens a Pandora's box of, of potential liability. It raises the standard of of what needs to be disclosed. It requires statutory disclosures, and it requires that each of those investors be what's known as sophisticated. That's a, a very vague doctrine, and you really won't find out until litigation whether you've met this. Plaintiff's attorneys love to find out that is a non-accredited investor. State securities divisions have even said on panels that I've participated on that they are much more likely to go after a fund that has non-accredited than those that do. And our firm and many other prominent securities practitioners have just drawn that that bright line and said, we, we just won't represent a client that, that uses non-accredited because of the risk that that fund manager would place to the investors and themselves.
0: John, there's a lot of players that can be involved in different aspects of this raising capital. And I just wanted to find some of them and what their roles are. And Sure. So there's the registered investment advisor. There's the investment advisor representative. There could be unaffiliated parties or separate entities. Do they have to Engage with each other in certain circumstances and not in others. And are all of these under a broker-dealer? So
1: when it comes to raising capital and paying fees, there there are actually technically two groups that are qualified to accept capital. One is an investment advisor. The other is a FINRA-registered broker-dealer. We don't talk much about investment Advisors because it's more difficult to pass the due diligence standards and also it confuses some of the clients because they they're thinking that they can set up their own investment advisor. These would have to be a separate investment advisor. So under an investment advisor at the state level you have the investment advisor representative and for that that's where the the series 65 comes in. Now for most investment funds that only invest in straight real estate, don't, that don't do joint ventures, etc. they don't need to worry about actually becoming an investment advisor. Now, going to the broker-dealer, the, the broker-dealer is the entity. The registered rep is the representative. And so these are the parties you're more likely to deal with when paying transaction-based compensation for the introduction of capital.
0: So is the registered rep synonymous with registered investment advisor?
1: The registered investment advisor is the entity. Generally, it's the entity. Underneath that, you have a IAR, investment advisor representative. In a different category, we're talking about a broker-dealer, that's the entity, then you have registered representative of the broker-dealer, or we call them registered reps.
0: And they're employed by the broker-dealer.
1: Correct. We're looking at different statutory programs and different agencies. FINRA oversees the broker-dealers and it's broker-dealer and a registered rep. The SEC governs investment advisors and states-governed investment advisors. An investment advisor is usually an entity, and underneath that entity, there is a representative called an IAR, Investment Advisor Representative.
0: And in that case, you wouldn't necessarily see them as part of raising capital?
1: They can be, but they have higher due diligence requirements, and they're usually not as likely to be a suitable intermediary because of their own internal restrictions and the type of clients that they represent. However, there are certainly there are registered investment advisors that do place capital with their clients for Regulation D, private placements, and and real estate
0: funds. But more common would be a broker dealer with a registered rep. Yes. And the registered rep is an employee of the broker-dealer? It is. So then the more common practice in raising capital would be dealing with a broker-dealer, and then your particular fund would be assigned to a specific registered rep, which is an employee of the broker-dealer, and they would go out and raise capital for you.
1: Exactly. And the payments go through the broker-dealer, not the registered rep.
0: At this point, I'd like to Go back to the beginning when we were talking about the different options for raising capital, one of them being the single asset acquisition vehicle, and then what you said was more of a pool fund. Clarify that for us.
1: Sure. So there are essentially three options for a private capital raise for real estate. The first, we call it a single asset acquisition vehicle. Uh, It's really an, an operating company rather than investing into a an outside asset, you're investing directly into the company. And this is where you you have a little bit more upside, generally for the issuer. Generally, you're talking about smaller amounts. And if they're a developer, this is a very common structure because all of the developers' profits, et cetera, is all built-in and and the outside investors simply take uh, either a percentage of a profit or a percentage of equity. That is the single asset acquisition vehicle. It's sometimes referred to as a PPM, which is a little bit misleading because a a fund and an equity fund and a debt fund also use PPMs. But if you hear operating company, single asset acquisition vehicle, or PPM, it's generally talking about this operating non-pooled vehicle.
0: What does the PPM stand for?
1: Yes, the PPM is the Private Placement Memorandum. It's also known as the the Private Offering Memorandum. It is a disclosure document that provides voluminous risk disclosures and plain language information to investors about the investment terms, structure, risks, strategy, bios, etc.
0: Does it also communicate the anticipated returns with a pro forma over the life of the investment? In a
1: equity fund, we urge extreme caution in including any form of extrapolations or or pro formas that lead to a certain return. We'd rather see you Include information upon which you're making those assumptions rather than the numbers themselves. But it's generally talking about the strategy, your perception of the market performance, and more than anything, the private placement memorandum is your litigation defense document. This is where you really need to cover your bases, provide for contingencies that a fund manager may want to, to do to allow for flexibility, risks, specific issues that could come up in this investment that's unique to
0: to the given fund. So don't investors want to know know, what the potential is for the investment? Where, Where do they see the pro forma? Where do they see the projections? Yeah, that's
1: really more appropriately prepared and included in the marketing material. And the marketing material is every bit as important to be very carefully vetted by a securities attorney because it can potentially get the clients into trouble. In fact, that's probably the area where we see the most cause of concern. But you're going to expect to see a a pitch deck, a tear sheet, an executive summary, and these are prepared by uh, a marketing company with input from legal counsel and any consultants that you're hiring to raise capital.
0: For an experienced developer that has a big staff of people... Can a lot of the people that prepare the marketing material and the projections be employees of the organization?
1: Yeah, Absolutely, and that's quite common. As a law firm, we're uh, a bit unique in that we really want to focus not just on the black letter law and, and disclosure, but we really want to be involved with the strategy and making sure that you are presenting the strategy in a way that is compelling. and. That's appropriate. And, and we have some helpful resources that talk about what makes that compelling. We've seen a lot of these marketing materials. We can refer you to really uh, good providers, but they're mostly focused on the asset look and feel and some of the copyright. But you've, you've really got to dig in and put a lot of effort into those marketing materials.
0: John, we've been talking a lot about private placement. Please explain to our listeners what is it that makes it private placement as opposed to a public placement? Because we are going out to the public, aren't we?
1: That's a good question. The two meanings of the word public, one is publicly registered and this is more what we mean. The other is publicly traded. One involves registration with a government entity, the other is registration with a exchange. And so we don't do anything in our law firm dealing with public funds and we, we stay in the private space. And so we're talking about a private placement to to mean any capital raise that is not registered as a securities offering under the Section 5 of the Securities Act. Now, there are what's known as a Regulation A+, which is another option for those that are looking for non-accredited investors, and there is a specific provision provided for in the JOBS Act that allows that, that capital raise, and that's technically a public offering, but it is done through a streamlined process that makes it a little simpler.
0: Let's talk about Opportunity Zones. There's been a lot of interest around Opportunity Zones. This is something that came out of the tax legislation that was passed last December 2017. And it has to do with investing in specific locations that have been designated as Opportunity Zones in each state. And what comes with that is the ability to benefit in terms of deferring capital gain in some respects and then also possibly eliminating capital gain in some other respects. And while there's still a lot of unanswered questions about how this is actually going to work, there are people that are executing these both as their own acquisitions and also something called qualified opportunity funds. In your practice, what have you been experiencing in terms of the interest around this new opportunity?
1: since early this year we have had a number of clients that have reached out to us and have formed these opportunity zone funds and we've already completed the documentation on a number of these there is some impending discussions from the regulators that we're waiting for very soon that will provide some additional information From a broad view, this opportunity helps to energize the real estate investment market on multiple fronts. One is providing an incentive for immediate investment, as well as a long-term tax deferral and long-term tax mitigation. And I, as the managing partner, am primarily working on the, the fund structuring side. We have an internal tax Attorney, and we rely on on excellent uh, outside specialized real estate tax counsel to develop some of these issues, and uh, we have an opportunity to hear from one of them now.
0: And here he is, John Dworkin, just coming in to join us. Welcome, John Dworkin.
2: Thank you, Bill and John, for having me here today as as your guest. Very much appreciated.
0: John, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate you popping in to answer some of the questions about tax law. We're going to be talking a little bit about the new opportunity zones and opportunity funds. And while we could devote an entire episode to that, we're just going to do a little high level, a couple of questions, get our listeners excited. Then we'll do something down the road that's a little bit more of a deep dive. How's that sound? That
2: sounds good. Thank
0: you. All right, great. You know, I just want to tell our listeners a little bit about you before we get started. John, you practice in a wide range of tax and corporate law matters. You have particular emphasis on structuring foreign institutional, individual and family investment in U.S. real estate, as well as foreign investment in U.S.-based real estate funds, private equity, joint ventures, and U.S. portfolio investments. Your practice also includes representing fund sponsors with respect to their offshore investment funds formed to invest in U.S. real estate and infrastructure. And again, John, thanks for being with us here today and popping in. Thank you. So, Mr. Dworkin, John, what are you seeing in the marketplace in terms of the interest around your clients in these opportunity zones and the qualified opportunity funds that are being created around them? And what I'd like to know specifically is what kinds of questions are your clients asking So, so for instance, are they asking you about investing previously realized gains in a project as a sponsor or in a qualified opportunity
2: fund? And what are you telling them? Yes, that's a good question. I have seen growing interest in this product. Um, Some of these investments are now starting to close. Uh, And certainly, sellers of any property who have gain... Are, are pretty excited about this possibility because previously, as we know, a 1031 exchange is very limited and now it's limited to just real estate. So uh, it has a very broad application and investors are, are quite interested. So I think some of the questions that come up are, I think this is a, a very valid question. So what happens in 2026 when you actually have to pay the tax on the deferred gain? How does that work? How do you get the cash to do it? Is the fund going to make a distribution to you? So I I think that is one question, because in 2026, you have to pay the the tax that was deferred. The clock is definitely ticking on your deferred tax. So I think that would look if I was um, an an investor doing this, that would be my number one concern is how am I going to get the cash to pay the tax then? Has the IRS offered any advice on that? Uh, No, no. it may be uh, uh, more in the fund documents. How are they going to provide liquidity at that time? So so, so one thing that someone who's
0: doing a qualified opportunity fund needs to take into consideration is uh, how are they going to offer liquidity at this point in 2026?
2: Yeah, that's correct.
0: As opposed to a regular fund where really that doesn't become an issue. That's right. Uh, and maybe some of the return on the investment that they received during this first however many years through 2026, has to be put into a reserve fund to
2: pay those taxes? It, it, that is a possibility. And, and if it's a reserve fund, will, will the investor have the liquidity to pay their annual taxes on the operating income? So it, are there going to be too many stresses on cash flow for the fund? Um, I, I think those are some valid questions. So what has happened
0: on some of the funds that you've seen close or are they getting ready to close? What have they put in the documents for that?
2: I, I think they're getting ready to close, so I wouldn't want to offer what is the industry right now. I think the industry is is learning on, on how to deal with this issue, but I don't think there's a trend right now.
0: Yeah, and what's funny is here it is 2018, and this is supposed to be a 10-year program, and 2026 is eight years from now. So it almost seems like they really didn't take into consideration that... Deadline date, and when I say they, I mean the people that wrote this into the tax law.
2: Uh, yes, I, I think it was just probably all statistical. Uh, when when will those taxes be paid?
0: And I just want to clarify something. So the the so let's say for instance you had a gain uh, on the sale of a business, or you had the gain uh, on the sale of uh, stocks and bonds and mutual funds, and you were going to pay capital gains on that, and now you're going to invest in one of these qualified opportunity funds, and let's say that that gain was $2 million. So now you invest this $2 million. That You still have to pay the uh, capital gains tax on that at some point. Even if you wait the 10 years, it's only the gain on the investment that you invested in that will be subject to eliminating capital
2: gains after 10 years. Is that right? That's right. So the $2 million of tax has to be paid in 2026, subject to uh, a, re- a reduction of 15%. So 85% of that tax has to be paid in 2026.
0: All right. So you do get a 15% reduction, though. Yes. Right.
2: And you were able to invest the entire amount of that
0: capital into this investment, which is going to bring you a greater return with no capital gain down the road in 10 years assuming that the disposition of that asset occurs at that time.
2: that That is correct. And even if putting aside the additional gain, just purely on a time value of money basis, you've deferred your tax till 2026, minus
0: 15%. Now, can all of this change? Can they amend this provision in the tax law to make it more desirable
2: or less desirable? I don't believe that this is one of the provisions that has a sunset. I mean, like the individual tax rates have a sunset uh, officially, but something like this does not. Um, And so I I would not foresee this could be amended.
0: Well, I'm looking forward to uh, some time going by uh, and us, all of us, being able to have more actual experience and also seeing more advice from the IRS on this so that we have a clear understanding of what people may or may not be able to do. Do you have some other? Questions that your clients have been asking that you want to share with us?
2: Uh, Yeah, I think, is there a possibility that um, it is real estate? uh, A 1031 could be done in 10 years to continue to roll over the gain. Or in 2026, could a 1031 exchange be done at that time? Um, Not clear on, on that answer. So it's not clear it's not clear, yeah. So there's nothing out there yet that actually defines whether that can happen or not. Well, it, it may be that at that point if you presumably you sell and you go into non-qualified property that you're no longer within the program. So you know these are some of the questions. I don't think there's a definitive answer, but you know, it would appear that you're no longer following the the program. You are just gone into any real estate at that point.
0: Right, but again, one of the big benefits of this is that the gain on the sale of an appreciated asset, like stocks or bonds or mutual funds or a business. And there is a way to defer the payment of that capital
2: gain and possibly get a 15% discount. Yep, all eligible. Yeah, there was, I mean, this is uh, a huge deferral opportunity for those assets that didn't even exist in any form before.
0: I have another question for you. We, At this point, we've been talking about the Qualified Opportunity Fund. But what if I have a real estate asset and I want to sell it and then I want to take the gain from that and I want to invest it in another single real estate asset that is in an opportunity zone do I get the same benefits as someone who is investing a gain in a
2: qualified opportunity fund? It's a good question. So when we think of a fund, we, we commonly think of a uh, of a partnership or an LLC that's fairly widely syndicated, has quite a few investors and a true commingled fund. But there's no there's no real requirement that it be a commingled fund. It has to be either a corporation or a partnership owning the property. So I think, in, you know, traditionally, of course, real estate is owned through partnership entities and not corporate entities. So in the case where uh, somebody uh, sells an asset, they have a gain, and then they just want to put that into work in, in a qualified opportunity zone and not in the context of a fund, then they would set up an LLC that would make the investment, and they would need to have at least one other partner just to make it a multi-member LLC. It can't be a a 100% owned LLC. They would have to bring in one investor, one partner, just to make it a multi-member entity.
0: So it can't be a single-member LLC.
2: Right. That would not be an entity uh, for tax purposes, correct.
0: And uh, what if uh, I don't think the stock market is going to continue to the rise, and I sell all my securities, and I have this huge gain? That I'm going to pay capital gains on, uh, but I also have a lot of experience in real estate. Can I just then go ahead and invest that gain in this single asset?
2: Uh, that would be that would be right. It would be essentially is no different than putting those funds into what we would think of as a commingled fund. As long as you had two members to this partnership or LLC and it was not a wholly owned entity, then you would have a partnership from a U.S. tax standpoint and you could do this. Correct. Can,
0: can the other partner be a limited partner
2: well presumably they would yes so you'd have an llc a multi-member llc yes right so i'm the general partner they're a limited partner no uh, well i think you're the managing member then they would be uh, a non-managing member and correct. they'd be a non-managing member yes. so i can make all the decisions correct and it doesn't matter how much they invest uh that that would be right i would put i would put them in at one percent uh just for uh, you know purposes if you want to make this a multi-member llc i think one percent would be a a good threshold, though, it could conceivably be lower than 1%. Um, it's not a magic number, but I would go with 1%. All right,
0: great. So up to this point, I was the example I was using was an LLC. What are some of the other entities that would qualify for this?
2: That's a good question. So if you, so if you did not want to bring in any other investors or members, and you want it to be a wholly owned entity, then the S-Corp would be your only route, uh, because an S-Corp could be wholly owned by you. Now, S-Corps traditionally do not hold real estate. They, they may hold it as um, just a, a relic of a previous time when, when it was more tax efficient for S-Corps to own real estate, but uh, it's rarely done now. But it, conceivably, if you really wanted to do it and not bring any other investors, then you could put your proceeds into an S-Corp wholly owned by you, and the S-Corp would own the real estate.
0: So, John, I understand you wanted to summarize for us.
2: Yeah, just briefly it, it is a, a very interesting uh new, new provision particularly in that you only have to invest the actual capital gain it's not the entire proceeds don't have to go into the zone or the fund it would just be the capital gain so uh, a very interesting provision that allows that kind of limited investment and in such a tax deferral till 2026 so i think um Uh, You know, it it is something very interesting and and very new that we haven't seen in the code before.
0: Yep. Wow, that's great. Thanks a lot for that uh, extra information. I'm so glad you were able to stop by. Sure. Thank you very much. All right, John. So that was John Dworkin stopping in to share his insights on the capital gain tax deferral around opportunity zones with us. Now back to you, John Lohr. Uh, And we're going to be finishing up. But, I would like to ask you, uh, you know what to what do the listeners really need to be aware of? What's that golden nugget that you can give them today uh, about idea around raising capital for their real estate investment?
1: There are a number of factors that go into a successful fund launch, But by and large, a lot of the success factors are determined. Prior to launch. And I think it's important that investors not run out and create a fund without really examining the feasibility. So we would want to see five elements of a a plan before launching a fund. One, to develop a very specific capital raising strategy, how you're going to raise the capital, we'd expect you to have some soft commitments leading into this capital raise to a, a specific strategy. Emerging managers tend to have more boutique-focused strategies. It needs to be fairly fleshed out. Investment terms you need to know what the, the terms of the offering are, uh, compensation structure, uh, then go into structuring and documents. And, and we like to talk through each of those during the first few initial consultations, which we would, would do prior to engagement to make sure that you're really ready to launch a fund.
0: John, thank you so much. That was extraordinary. And I'm so glad that John Dworkin was able to stop by and share with us some of his insights with regard to the tax benefits of the opportunity zones. And I'm sure that our Realty Speak listeners will agree that this episode will give them many great ideas about how to raise capital while staying compliant, which is really, really important. And even though we've covered many topics today, they still may have questions for you. I know that your website is just chock full of information, but there's nothing better than, you know, talking to the source, as we have demonstrated today. Are willing to share your email address and telephone number and your website, that would be great. And I can also include that in the show notes.
1: Sure, and thank you. And and hopefully the information we have online is helpful. You can find white papers, videos at our website, capitalfundlaw.com. We're always glad to to jump on a call to see if we can be of assistance and and steer clients in the right direction and really dialing in on what they're looking to do uh, before before jumping too quick. Feel free to reach out to us at info at capitalfundlaw.com.
0: All right. Great. Thanks a lot, John. That's, uh, again, been extraordinary. And it's fabulous that you were able to visit with us today. Thank you, Bill. It's been great. Thank you. Hey there, everyone. Thank you for listening. I look forward to you joining in for the next episode of Realty Speak, the podcast. You can subscribe right on the player and choose your favorite platform like iTunes or Google Play Music, or just search for us on your favorite podcast app like Podcast Republic, my fave on Android devices, or Apple Podcasts for iPhone. And please, share our show with others. Just choose share on the player and choose your preferred social media platform. And of course, you can always get to me via the website at BillWeider.com. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. And remember, it's not about us, but about how we help you make the bottom line rise. Until next time.